Hello, and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman, and I'm very excited for this one. This is an interview I've wanted to do for the last three years. Imagine yourself in a world where you didn't have to buy anything, where if you wanted something, you just asked, and if you had things to share, you gave them. My guests today have done more than imagine that world. They've worked to create it, and it's spread from one small island in the Pacific Northwest to all over the world. Rebecca Rockefeller and Liesl Clark are the co-creators of the Buy Nothing Project, a network of hyper-local gift economies in 25 countries. They started in 2013, a small Facebook group. Within a month, they had 1,000 members. Within a year, 10,000. People have planned entire weddings through Buy Nothing. They've furnished apartments, asked for haikus or random stories. Even the tablet Rebecca used for this interview was borrowed from Buy Nothing. What started small now has over 1.2 million members around the world, along with a brand new book, Buy Nothing, Get Everything. Their mission is to get us to get rid of all this stuff, to find ways of taking better care of our planet. Here's their story. So I think in order to tell this story properly, I'd really like to start at the beginning. Tell me a bit about where you grew up. Rebecca, you want to start? Oh, sure. I'll start. So this is Rebecca here. I I grew up um, where I still live today, here on Bainbridge Island, which is um, the island where um, Liesl and I met. And I traveled and lived other places as well. But right before my, uh, right after actually my first daughter was born, I moved back to be closer to my parents and um, family. So I am, I'm kind of a homegrown, didn't stray very far product. Liesl, how about you? Um, probably the exact opposite in that I, you know, I, I was born in California in the LA area. And then my parents, I guess they had already lived in about 15 places. At that point, I was the youngest of four. And then we, we soon moved within a few months to um, Santiago, Chile. And, you know, I learned to speak Spanish as my first language, but really a baby language. Um, and still, I only speak it as a baby. Um, and we moved back to the States when I was four. And we lived in Maryland for a few years and then um, to Massachusetts and back down to the D.C. area and then back to Massachusetts, um, where from about fourth grade on. So definitely moved around a lot, but did feel very grounded in our final home um, on the North Shore, uh, north of Boston in Massachusetts. Uh, Rebecca, I'll come back to you for a moment. What What is uh, a rock farmer? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a little play on terms. My last name is Rockefeller. And here on Bainbridge, where I grew up, my father who grew up in the Hudson Valley of New York, which was when he was little, a farming community and my extended family were almost exclusively farmers or people who worked to support farming. Um, so when my dad moved out here right after I was born, he really wanted to get back to farming. It's in his blood to be in the soil and the soil here on Bainbridge is glacial till soil left over from the last ice age and it's horrendous it's full of rocks so rock farmer is what we called ourselves when <laughs> we were growing up i was growing up we were rock farmers we had more plentiful rocks coming out of our soil than any vegetable we could grow and my parents um started 
during the sort of the Great Recession that we had not too long ago, they started a community garden that's called Rock Farm. Um, so we, it's a, it's a term that my family uses in a lot of different places. So it's the name of my blog. It's the name of my family's, my extended family's community garden. Um, and it's sort of how we identify ourselves. Community garden sounds like a, a good precursor to what might become the Buy Nothing Project later. So, so it was kind of the seeds were sown early for you then. Well, yeah, that actually, so the community garden started actually after Liesl and I had started the Buy Nothing Project, but okay. I, um, there's no, it's not an exaggeration to say that my, my values are very much determined by my family. And um, I come from a family in which public service is seen as a non-negotiable that every person in our family is expected to be involved in and that that is really sort of seen as I guess I could I grew up in a family that sees itself as that is our, our life's work so we manifest that in a variety of different ways but it's definitely a value that I was raised with from the very beginning. Now Liesl you are you know someone you've talked about already moving all over the map uh, you're a documentary filmmaker which meshes well with that how did that begin? I would say similarly to Rebecca's life story, um, my formation as a piece of clay was made by my parents. And I would say that they have had a huge effect on my life. And they're very, they're very outgoing people and taught all of, you know, the four of us, um, my siblings and I, a sense that wherever we lived was home and we had a lot to learn from wherever we lived. So for example, when I was a teenager, we built a family home up in the mountains in New Hampshire and it was all made out of recycled wood and recycled materials for that home and from other, other homes, other old barns. And uh, you, we used that wood to create a sense of space and a, a sense of new space out of old materials. And they they took us everywhere with them. And, uh, you know, we learned languages with them. And we, we learned what they did also as public servants. My father worked for the as an economic advisor to the Chilean government. And my, my mother was a teacher. And so we, we all, it, what was instilled in all of uh, the siblings was that sense that we have to work hard for what, for the life that we, you know, the good life that we can live together. And um, so as a filmmaker, that's always been my sense that you can sort of build the world that you want to live in. And as a storyteller, I, I really want to tell stories and sort of pioneer my way through some difficult barriers, whether they're physical barriers in, in high altitude places or, you know, extreme cold places like Antarctica, I don't feel uncomfortable in those places. And I think it's just because of my parents, because they instilled in me a sense of, I can, if anyone can go there and it's humanly possible, I can do that. <laughs> you were doing, uh, Liesl, web reporting in the early days. Like what did web reporting look like in, in the mid 1990s? Oh yeah, no one was doing it at all. So, um, <laughs> I feel really fortunate to have been able to be in a position to be sort of, you know, the right person at the right time. Um, you know, for example, at Everest Base Camp in 1996, when in a single given day, uh, 10 people died. And that was the greatest loss of life, um, hum you know, human life up to that point on Mount Everest. And there was a, a huge storm. And of course, John Krakauer's best-selling book, Into Thin Air, came out of that. 
a lot came out of that, including a documentary that I then made for Nova on PBS about human physiologic response to high altitude. And really, I was just lucky to be there with a camera. It literally just looked like this, a camera, a laptop, um, some audio equipment like you probably have, and and a satellite phone. And it, it really hasn't changed much at all. Obviously, the cameras and the laptops and everything, the, the sat equipment is much faster. Hmm. Uh, and, but, you know, and people are up at Everest Base Camp now with cell phones, which is just incredible. You can call home from your cell phone, unthinkable then. So to, to be a journalist and be there with the only, you know, well-functioning satellite phone, uh, and to be able to report back, certainly, you know, well before these events even happened and having people following us in real time with what we called webumentaries, uh, for PBS, was really an honor um, because all the media was sort of funneling through our own channel because it was one of the only ways for the media to access the events that were unfolding on the mountain. So getting back to where you are today, Bainbridge Island and, and what you're doing today with Buy Nothing. So you're both on the island, but you haven't known each other forever. How did the two of you meet? <laughs> Liesl, do you want to tell that story? Yeah, well, we, we met through FreeCycle, and we laughed because we met through the very thing that we're doing now um, by sharing. And so I, I met Rebecca when I was giving away some white plastic hanging plant pots, you know, sort of these rectangular plant pots that you can hang from your, your deck. And I didn't really have a deck to hang them from. I think I had brought them from Massachusetts when we moved out here from Massachusetts. And so there they were, and they were of no use to me. And I offered them up on FreeCycle. And then Rebecca offered something to me. Maybe, Rebecca, you can take it from here. So I have a curly willow tree in my backyard. And I had trimmed a bunch of the branches out of it, and I had a big pile of sticks in my front yard, and I thought, oh, I'll offer these on FreeCycle. They're very cool sticks. Surely, you know, lots of people will want them. <laughs> I offered them, and um, they were not the hot item that I thought they would be, but Liesl wanted the sticks, um, and so... <laughs> We ended up, there were, I think, a couple other things as well that, like, Liesl would offer something and I would really want it. And I would offer something kind of weird and Liesl would really want it. And I, we eventually just realized that we had to meet each other. But I think it literally was over that pile of sticks in my front yard when we, like, met in person for the first time. But it was in this context of having shared sort of unusual objects with each other. How much of a community was there at the time for things like free cycle, especially in, in your neck of the woods? Or was it simply, you know, you were the two Bainbridge Island members of free cycle, so you're, you're just trading items back and forth? Well, it's kind of an interesting story because we, this is Liesl speaking, um, we, we found pretty quickly um, through free cycle, which was quite a, a popular endeavor for islanders here, um, as an island, you can look at the island as sort of a, a, a like a little microcosm for the world. It, we, it has its own boundaries, the shoreline, and we have a set amount of stuff. And people love to share here and people love to conserve and conserve their resources. So it was alive and well, free cycle. But there, there were, Rebecca and I found really quickly, you know, of course we shared these items with each other and then we met each other because we had kids the same age. And so there was that bonus. So not only did we, we love each other's kind of castaways, um, we found that we had um, kids the same age and they, you know, they were fast friends. And 
we also had free cycle in common, but we realized that there were some limitations to free cycle. And some of it was there, there was a set way that you needed to post things. You also couldn't have discussion on free cycle about the items that were being offered up. And we felt very limited by the, you know, the quote unquote rules of free cycle in that we really wanted to meet the people like Rebecca and I had found each other Mm -hmm. and we wanted to be able to have a conversation about the items and really come to know the people behind those email addresses. And you would come to know people a little bit because we'd get very creative in the way we posted our, our gifts. And, and, uh, in fact, we got kicked out of free cycle because we were getting a little (laughs) too creative and, and having a lot of fun. And, um, so, you know, in the end, that was one of the catalysts for us to, to actually start an alternative. So how did that alternative take shape? What were, what were the sort of the, the sowing of the seeds that would become the Buy Nothing Project? There were a lot of, this is Rebecca here, there were a lot of disparate threads that came together. So Liesl and I, after we met and became friends and our kids became friends, we ended up doing a couple of years of citizen science work that was sparked by Liesl and her kids in one day that they had on the beach when they ran into a ton of plastic pollution that was hiding in plain sight that none of us had really seen before, even though it was right in front of us. And so that led us down this whole path of documenting all of this plastic waste. And then we started experimenting on ourselves and our families to reduce waste. And we worked together to create a database of reuse solutions for people. And we ran zero waste school audits for free. And we did a beach plastic education program in the local schools that, um, so we had all of this thinking that we were doing um, and, and discussion and documentation about how do we take what we see regarding waste in the environment? Sort of, it's basically, it's all these objects that we have that come back to us. Mm-hmm. The um, plastic waste that we were seeing on our beaches wasn't from far away. It wasn't, you know, people who didn't care about the planet chucking buckets of plastic into the ocean miles from us. It was from us. It came from our watersheds. Um, and that made us ask why, you know, what, out of these objects can we not use? What do we, what can we avoid? How do we have a personal impact on this waste stream that's our waste stream? It's right here in front of us. And some of these things need to be answered systemically, but some of these things can be answered through individual action as well. So we did a lot of exploring into that individual action and experimenting to see like, how long can we go without bringing any plastic into our homes and how little waste can we produce? And then that led to like, how do we give this information to other people? So that was the school program and the, um, you know, the zero waste audits, all these other things. And at the same time, we were being kicked out of free cycle for being too um, funny in some cases, (laughs) like we were not humor in our posts. And then the, we were really kicked out when we offered too much. So um, there's a big rummage sale that happens here that's hosted by our local Rotary Club, and they take over an entire middle school campus on our island, which is one of our bigger buildings on this island. And they have a one-day rummage sale that they bill as one of the biggest or the biggest single-day rummage sale event in the world. And they bring in, what is it, at least like a half a million dollars, I think, or close to that in a single day of sales. 
Um, people donate all their objects, they're sorted and they're sold. People come from all over to buy things during the sale day. And they have, it takes a whole week to set it up and a couple of days to break it down. And Weasel and her kids were there helping, volunteering, and they were literally picking things out of the dumpster that were still good, that they wouldn't, the sale people wouldn't be able to sell them, but that still had objects that still had life and use in them. And Weasel called me, my kids and I came down there and the four of us, or actually I guess it was the six of us, five, six, yeah, to do my math, pulling things out of this dumpster and posting them on FreeCycle and then giving them away. And the FreeCycle moderator didn't like what we were doing and shut us down. So about a week after that, all of these things came together. And there was one other thing that I'm forgetting as well. So in all of our experimenting, we started a thing that we called Bainbridge Barter, but it was actually not bartering at all. But it was a an event that happened every Saturday morning about an hour before our local farmer's market opens. And we invited local people, anybody who wanted to bring whatever they had in excess from their kitchens or their gardens was originally how we envisioned it to just come to this sort of sharing potluck in a park. So we met in our local park. We set everybody who came with whatever bounty they had to give away would set it out on a picnic table um, people would take a couple of seconds to explain what they brought. So I would be like, well, this is my yogurt and here's how I made it. And Lizzo would say, you know, these are nettles and here are greens from my garden. And this is how you might want to cook them. And then we had people bringing bread and other people bringing flowers or plants that they had started, seeds, all sorts of things. And then everybody would take what they wanted. And there was no exchange. There was no bartering. It was a true gift economy that we were experimenting with. And it was really pretty popular. There was a crew of people who came every week to enjoy it. But we, because of where we live climate wise, we could only do that a certain number of months out of the year. And then we would just get rained out. It would mm -hmm. be too cold. So we, we had that experience. We had all of our six and science work. We had the getting kicked out of free cycle, all of these different things culminated. And we just reached a point where I called Liesl one night and was like, that's it. I think we should just start our own group we should start our own gift economy like what we used to do in the park but we can do it on Facebook and we had been talking about it off and on for years like how do we do this what platform do we use how do we get we need something that's free because this is non-monetized right. but we need a platform where people can see each other um, literally like see photos of each other and see how where we already have existing connections and like take advantage of that and let in, encourage people to be humorous or to be poignant, to be genuine, to share themselves, to share, to show who they are, because that's how ultimately we think we can shift our relationship with our stuff. When we see our, the people behind the stuff and care about them more than we care about the stuff, then we're going to start shifting our relationship with our stuff, our relationship with the materials economy, our production of waste, our use of single-use objects, all of these things. We, we sort of, we'd been talking about it for years and we thought that that might be the recipe for success. So that's my big long ramble. Weasel, what do you have to add? <laughs> I think, I think, boy, you covered a lot of territory. Um, and I would say, I would say that the, um, 
you know, that moment of looking, kind of looking at each other and saying, we need to do something else because we found that there were items, perfectly good items that were being thrown away in the dumpster, <laughs> um, as well as uh, things that we were finding that, for example, you know, nettles, Rebecca brought up that I, you know, I brought nettles to this sharing potluck and, and I did it shyly because I thought that perhaps people would be shocked that I was just grabbing something that I can just get, anyone could get in the woods, but they were cherished and um, people were more than happy to try them and, uh, you know, carefully. Um, I think I even brought them, they had already been steamed. So they were sort of easy to, easy to then take this big lump of, <laughs> of greenness and add to a, a soup and, um, and whatnot. So I think that there was a, a genuine aha moment after we set up the first group here on Bainbridge Island and people were literally giddy with the ability to share random items that nobody would typically think that you would share. And everyone was sort of testing it out. Every time they posted a new thing, you'd sort of push those boundaries and, and ask, I mean, really, is anybody going to want this? And lo and behold, someone would, would want it. We use the example in a book of the little spring thing that goes inside a, um, a, a toilet paper tube um, holder, <laughs> toilet paper roll holder, right? And so someone had the the other part, right? And another person had the spring part. So they, they they just offered it up and someone actually needed the toilet paper roll spring thing. <laughs> and, wow. um, you know, rather than going and buying the whole, you know, a whole thing, they could just get the part and fix it. So that was a, a key moment in, in all of us collectively saying, wow, I think we can do this. I think this makes a lot of sense. Now we need to um, scale it. And we didn't even say we needed to scale it, people started to spread the word. And then the next community nearby uh, wanted to start a group and the community beyond. And then a person told a friend in California and then she started a group and then, she, you know, she told friends nearby and then that started to grow organically. And within a year, we had most of Seattle mapped in buy nothing groups. That is incredible still to me that how quickly something like that grows uh, and, and has grown over the years. I mean, what do you think it was and, and is about it that people jumped on in the way that they did? I, we always say that initially people come for the stuff uh, because it's, it's so beguiling when you see there, there's wonderful, there are wonderful things that are being offered up in these buy nothing groups in, and in any gift economy. You will see furniture, you'll see clothing, you'll see um, food, which is, you know, a huge, huge amount of our waste comes from food. And even if it's not edible food, it can go to the chickens who live nearby. And when people start to realize that, and then they're, they're reducing their waste at the same time. But then there are the gifts of self. And that starts to, you know, light off light bulbs in people's heads when they realize that, oh, I don't have to give a thing or ask for a thing. I can ask for um, someone to help me edit, a, 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 you know, my, my curriculum Vita. <laughs> um, I can ask for someone to translate something that I need, that I need to understand. I can ask for someone to join me in a game of Scrabble. And I offer that up as an example, because it's a beautiful example of um, something that happened with a, a member 
was literally home for hospice care. She was very, very sick with an, um, basically with an eating disorder. And she brought herself out of her situation by literally reaching out to the community and asking for company during the excruciating moments when she had to eat. Right. And she just thought, well, just distract me. Okay. Let's play Scrabble. Let's let's talk, let's do anything. So I don't have to really think about it. And she brought herself to good health through the goodwill of community members who all rallied around her and joined her, uh, for, you know, at least three meals a day, but probably also for all the snacks in between that are necessary for someone in, in her situation. And, and it was a beautiful thing to watch her come to good health. And, and so as we say, people come for the stuff and then they start to see all the other things that are happening and people are giving gifts of their time and their talent. But then they sort of walk away with something even bigger, which is that sense of connection and meeting who your true neighbors are. And most of us don't even know who lives nearby. And uh, I think that that's an extremely powerful thing for most most people who join any kind of gift economy, especially if it's hyper-local, because once you get beyond stuff and you get into the the you know the the talents and the time and the ability to share of oneself and you see each other giving to each other and you become connected through the materials that we have in our homes through the things that we don't even need then then you're walking away with something extremely powerful that you didn't even know you were gaining because you're actually getting to know the people all around you without even trying (laughs) that that part right there is one of the things that has stuck with me the most. You know, when I was first reading about you and and learning about your story, I was reading about how it began. And and there was one story that stuck with me about this woman who, who gets a dozen eggs and, and then says, I've lived here for years and never talked to anyone. I mean, to think that something that started so simply could lead to moments like that. I mean, what did you think when you heard her say that? I offered up the eggs um, as one of the very first gifts that I offered. And and what's interesting about that is that a bunch of my friends chimed in and pe- or people that were sort of friends of friends that I knew, as well as people who had already received items from others. And I chose Susan because I didn't I didn't know her and I hadn't seen that she had received anything from the group. And so I, you know, I tend to do that and that I like to find someone that I haven't met before or, or just at least, um, offer a new gift to someone who hasn't, who hasn't been a part of the, the, uh, the group. And, you know, just on the outside, she just seemed so lovely just from, you know, snooping on her Facebook page. And so I, I think she, I think I went to her house and I offered the eggs and, um, and we hit it off and I just, I couldn't believe what, you know, here's this amazing woman who's, who's an artist and a thinker and a writer and, and so creative and has a beautiful garden. And my kids met her and we met her dog. And, you know, we were instantly connected. And she also met another really close friend of mine. And they just, they spent hours and hours talking. They had tea together. And all of this was happening in real time, everyone connecting with each other. And um, so I, I love the example of Susan because then I showed up on her doorstep with my camera rolling. And that's what you see is her, you know, <laughs> literally has seen me and my kids show up and, you know, and I've got the camera in my hands and she's just trying to be gracious and letting us in her house um, while interviewing her. And she, um, you know, she's now, she will be a lifelong friend. Hmm. And I read that because that was not just the, the advantage, I think, of 
our of what happens in buy nothing groups is that those sorts of interactions don't just impact the two people. So in this case, that wasn't just between Susan and Liesl. The rest of us heard about it because Susan came to the whole group and she posted this gratitude that was like, you know, this piece that she wrote that just said, I've lived here for so many years. And I, this in the past, I think it was like at that point, one month in the past month, this being part of this giving community has radically changed my daily life like I have connections here I feel like I've found people that I have things in that I have shared values with that I care about I feel like people see me I see them I I feel not isolated at all and and she still is an introverted person but you know she was like now I have the kind of community that I feel comfortable with and I feel that I'm a valued member of it and I have people I care it's it, it's just very transformational and I remember that piece that she wrote and that gave us then all a chance to um recognize that we were part of that that it's not just the connection between Liesl and in this case, Susan, that it's it that all of us were part of making that happen and supporting that and supporting her and ourselves at the same time. Hmm. There's there's a term I've seen used frequently in the buy nothing community, and that's uh, abundance. I've seen that used quite a lot. It seems like an important pillar in all of this. What does abundance mean for buy nothing? That is one of our pillars for sure. That um, I to me that is a word we want people to focus on because it's what we're trying to shift. It's we're trying to help people see that when we look at our stuff and our selves, our gifts of self, our basic innate generosity and desire to care for each other, there's an incredible abundance if we look at these things as a collective. And we are trained in so many ways to be in a scarcity mindset in which we feel like we have to amass all of these things and all of these skills and hold them close to ourselves that as if somehow that's the only way they have value is if I own something completely and no one else is allowed to touch it or I have a skill set that I can depend on and I and that's that I have to do it all by myself and we want people to see a different reality that's already exists in front of us if we just see it and take advantage of it, which is that when we start sharing our stuff and our skills with each other freely, there's this amazing abundance that is rock solid and that can see us through not just times of ease, but times of difficulty and true scarcity as well. When we have that network of connections and generosity and the habit of sharing instead of holding to ourselves, that that a trust in abundance is not a folly. It's not um I, you know, some utopian thinking, but it's just as real as, and in fact, actually more, more trustworthy, I think, than believing in, in the scarcity model that we're raised to ingest. What happens if, um, if you can't give anything in return? I guess suppose that means physical things, but if you don't have any objects to give in return, what, you know, what are the rules, I suppose, of, uh, of being part of a buy nothing group? Well, um, this is Liesl, um, that, I would say that the the beauty of a true gift economy is that there is no expectation of having to give anything in return, okay? So if you 
join a gift economy. It, there, there are no strings attached. You, if you receive something, it doesn't mean that you must return anything to the giver. Um, that's that's the, one of the hardest things for people to wrap their minds around is the idea that in a true gift economy, the gifts are not valued. There's they they all have equal value, um, and they also come with zero commitment or or expectation of a reward or a return or a need for any kind of reciprocity. So it's a pretty radical way of of living, but we believe that we can do this, that we can get groups of people together who are willing to give freely. And if someone feels, uh, I mean, perhaps your question is more along the lines of, okay, so I've received, but I feel like I really want to give, but I don't feel that I have anything to give. So in that scenario, we also... um, feel very strongly that everyone has something to give. And this is where, again, the gifts of self are so important. So even your company can be a gift to someone or a a listening ear can be a gift to someone. Um, Even, you know, flowers that you've just, you know, picked even, you know, wild, wild, even dandelions along the side of the road offered as a, as um, even a photo of them in this pandemic, of course, that we were sort of struggling with giving actual physical things to each other. And so offering up ideas and, and thoughts and, and helping people, um, if you have a truck and you can help to pick something up or help someone with, um, with a project that they need, if you have any kind of expertise, you can give that. So, but it, but there is no requirement that you actually give. And we say that because also because it is so important for people to ask. So a gift economy doesn't mean that people are only giving. In a gift economy, you can ask for anything that you want. And it doesn't have to be something you need. Um, we don't sort of decipher any, any difference between wants and needs in a gift economy because, again, there, it's, it's, it's all the same. You shouldn't need to feel that you have to say how important that thing is that you need. You can literally just, just um, you know, post or, or talk to people about what it is that you may want. And it's always wonderful if you, if you have a, a sort of an explanation or a story to go along with it um, and to help people to sort of understand you a little bit better. But it's not, it's not an effort to convince people to give to you. Um, the important thing is that you're asking because we cannot give unless someone is receiving. And so that's the other half of the equation. There's only giving and it, the giving can only be successful if someone is willing to receive. So um, when you ask for something, even though you feel that, you know, uh, we find that often it's really hard for people to ask for items, partly out of pride, partly, um, oh, for so many reasons. I mean, women have a really tough time asking for what they might need because in general, women tend to be the, you know, the caregivers and taking care of people's needs and often are, you know, assisting others with their needs. And, you know, sort of your needs come last. And so once we all learn to just, you know, let go of that and ask, then you're giving another person an opportunity to, to give to you. So it's a very sort of complex and fascinating dynamic, but it doesn't have to be so complex when you realize gives, asks, all of that, there is no value placed on any single kind of gift. Um, you know, a brick could be of equal value as a refrigerator because who knows that brick might be 
you know, the last brick in a really important project that you're finishing or a little tiny home that you're building. And, um, you know, and here we are in this pandemic and you don't want to run to a to um, a store to buy, you know, those bricks that you need. And and lo and behold, your neighbor has exactly what you need. You mentioned something there, Liesl, that I wanted to touch on. And, and that is, uh, you know, we're all adjusting right now to to this global pandemic and limiting the spread of coronavirus these days. I mean, most folks are pretty rooted at home. How has Buy Nothing adapted in these times? Go ahead, Rebecca. I'll let you take that one. (laughs) That is a question with so many different answers because so right now the Buy Nothing project, which is this sort of um, network of local gift economies that Liesl and I helped, you know, sort of um, set into motion about seven years ago, um, is in, I think it's around 30 countries, and we think we have about 1.5 million participants. And so, so, you know, this is a pandemic, and it's impacting different different countries, different states, different provinces differently at any given moment. And there are a lot of different public health orders in place that are constraining, you know, people's uh, ability to leave their homes in certain places more or less than in other places. So um, the beauty of our movement is that each of these local giving groups really answers only to itself. So Liesl and I don't have any say in what happens in a group in Brooklyn or in California or anywhere other than literally the group that we are admins for locally where we live. Um, so every all over the world, every one of these buy nothing projects has had to make a decision about how do they stay in line with whatever public health order is in place where they are and still allow people to connect with each other. So overall, we're seeing much more focus on gifts of self. And at the moment, a lot of that looks like just checking in on each other every day or offering things that you can offer. Um, people are getting much more creative in terms of their use of, like, you know, like people who um, might have worked at a yoga studio now are out of work, they're at home, but they're maybe offering a free yoga class for their fellow group members every morning or a dance class or um, just a chat cocktail hour in the evening or a cup of tea conversation or just checking in on each other, delivering groceries, picking up prescriptions is another really big one, sewing each other face masks, um, providing food for each other, sort of really focusing in on the essentials that are keeping people alive and safe in their homes, especially people who are at higher risk and really should not step outside of their home. And I see people being really mindful and doing their very best to be very conscious about how they're handling items and how everybody is, you know, treating the items before they bring them into their homes and all of that. So it's, um, there's, you know, it's there's a wide variety of stuff happening, and it is all in response to what the pandemic looks like in each of these locations at any given moment. You've done all kinds of things to buy nothing. I mean, it, the, the the fact that a community like this, a global community like this, is able to a- adapt in the way that it has and does uh, in times like this is is refreshing to hear, but it's only a part of it. I mean, you've, through buy nothing, you've started a, a gift economy disaster aid program. Tell me about that. Um. <clears throat> This is Liesl, and we started the um, the person-to-person for relief effort. Actually, it, it came out came to being organically when 
there there was a landslide in Oso, Washington, and I believe it was 43 homes that were um, inundated, and uh, all of the people inside the homes were killed instantly. And it's not too far from here, but this was at a time when we had buy nothing groups and still do um, all in surrounding communities as well in throughout the whole entire state of Washington. And the world was, you know, it, it was a story that struck everyone. And to have, you know, an enormous wall of mud just come down on, you know, on a perfectly beautiful Saturday morning um, on, and, and kill so many people and wipe out an entire neighborhood was just devastating. And mm -hmm. we were able to find that through this network of giving groups and literally, you know, by having several gift economies all sort of uh, bordering each other because they're all hyper-local groups within communities, we were able to quickly spread the word on what was needed by the, you know, the survivors. And there were plenty of homes that were um, inundated but not completely buried and destroyed. And so there were plenty of survivors. And, and there were people who were, there was an entire community that was cut off from the rest of the world, so to speak, because they were, it's sort of a, they're mountain roads that get you to to these communities and um, and people were searching for their loved ones and everybody needed you know everything from from water to just basic toiletries and clothing they had lost everything so we were able to quickly mobilize and get uh, communities all across the state um, we even had some help coming from Canada and um, people just gathering what they could and we found that we were able to mobilize um, even faster than some of the aid organizations that typically show up at, um, at you know, a, a, a natural disaster like this. And, um, and, and so we brought several truckloads, and, and I don't mean just personal truckloads, like literally filled semis with um, materials and food for community members. And this was, this was an effort. It wasn't just a charitable effort. It was a person-to-person -person effort. And it was because we knew people in Oso and Darrington, uh, nearby Darrington, through because they were the admins of the local buy nothing groups there. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to literally ask them, what do you need? What does your community need? And they were able to network within their community. And we networked within all of the groups and we got them exactly what they needed. And um, then, um, so as another example, there was an earthquake in Nepal, a 7.8 earthquake. And um, I think it's 2.3 million people who lost their lives. And we were able to even bring um, aid to the people of Nepal who were living in remote villages who for even a month after the earthquake happened, they still didn't have roofs over their heads. So through our network of people all over the world, we were able to bring in tents, tarps, sleeping bags, and, uh, you know, uh, lights, uh, lamps, and um, uh, cell phone chargers, these solar chargers that we were able to um, to get. And a lot of these things were just items that people actually had in their homes. The, the tarps, I, you know, I had my carport filled with tarps that local community members here and throughout my county were able to collect. And we um, stuffed duffel bags full of all of these materials and got them into Nepal through what we called an underground network of um, of just travelers and even airline pilots who were um, who were uh, taking time off and just uh, jump seating their way over to Nepal to bring with them whatever duffel bags they could get in and through customs without customs taking them 
um, and requisitioning them as the government of Nepal was known to do at that time. And then we handed them to real people that I know on the ground because I spend a lot of time there. And our mountaineering and kayaking friends were able to then get up into these extremely remote areas where there were no roads and, and no way to get there except to go, you know, by foot over land. And, and these are communities that we know, real people who we are in contact with, who uh, were able to, to, to see some relief, at least a roof over their heads before the monsoon came. And then finally, of course, um, there was a hurricane season where um, Hurricane Harvey and Irma and Maria hit all in one season. And uh, similarly, I, you know, I made a film for, for Nova, a PBS uh, series, a science series about the hurricanes, about the earthquake as well, as well, a separate film and also the landslide. And so I was directly connected to scientists who were on the ground doing work in these areas, as well as real people who I needed to connect with to just be able to tell, you know, help them to tell their stories of what they had lived through with these hurricanes. So again, the buy nothing groups, the admins themselves, as well as members, all were able to join this group, this uh, person to person for relief group, and network and bring in tons and tons of materials for people who just weren't getting the aid that they needed through the, the typical aid organizations that do take some time to, to bring in uh, that aid. So this was, this was an instant way to address the situation. Hmm. I want to add one thing to what Liesl was saying, if I may, which is that when Liesl says person-to-person -person relief, we're really talking about the goods that we've this network has been able to send into people who need it are very specific. So like a teenage boy size eight shoe and, um, you know, like, mm -hmm. and things that people want as well as things that people need. Like for instance, a, you know, like a, um, a, a Nintendo 3DS game player for a kid. Like, okay, nobody needs that to survive, but when you've suffered the loss of everything you own, gifts like that can make a huge difference on a you know like a soul level a spirit level for a kid like mm. to to have something that is extra something that is um you know that I get you could define it as a luxury item but it's something that makes you feel taken care of beyond just your basic needs and so we've been able to send in with real specificity things that people need things that people want things um you know in their size in their color that they that they most want. so that so that in a lot of cases people feel taken care of as individuals like seen as individuals and valued that way and I, I think that's one facet of this that I find really remarkable personally every time I see it happen because it's it's something that large-scale aid is also really necessary and helpful, but it doesn't have the ability to do that, mm. that super specific personal aid. Right. And I, I would just add one tiny, like a good example of that is when the campfire happened in Chico, in paradise, um, above Chico, California. And um, my brother and sister-in-law live there. And um, they were able to literally, you know, call, call for and ask for um, musical instruments for their friends and um, many, many families that they know of and whose children have, and family, just adults, had also lost their instruments. And the loss of music was a, a, just a, a, a huge loss for the community because it was a way for people to, um, to release stress and to be able to express themselves. And so we were able to bring 
very specific instruments, um, you know, particular drums and, um, and you know, all the, the sort of handheld instruments and um, guitars, etc. And they were delivered, collected and delivered. And it really, it really made a difference. And that's not sort of your typical aid organization item that you might see that, you know, FEMA or the Red Cross would, would be providing. All, all of these things that you're talking about here are such powerful, you know, acts of community and, and investments in community. It seems inseparable from all of the work that Buy Nothing has led to. I mean, how, how has this project shaped each of your senses of community? Hmm. You want to go, Rebecca? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think of, it's so profound that it's hard for me to parse it out. <laughs> because um, I... I'm looking around my house, which is right now a complete disaster. I've been living here for two months in lockdown with two teenagers. So, <laughs> you know, it's a little bit cluttered, it's a little messy, but it is, I'm looking around and I see objects here that have come from, I mean, my, it, it's like my house is furnished thanks to my community, but my, my kitchen is full of food. My, I have a sewing table that I'm sewing masks at for people and I'm using donated fabric and donated thread. Um, and I am giving, donating the masks back to people who are high risk in our community. And all of that came from my local buy nothing group. So it's sort of hard for me to even imagine like how, what my life would be like without this. And I, and I, I don't, believe that that's just me I think that and that's a kind of a common I think it's a common feeling for people who have a, a one of the groups that they participate in um and I guess I would add that you know I'm 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 the sort of a science geek and and love to sort of read all the scientific material I can find on these sorts of things and there's really not a lot out there to tell to be honest um you know, in terms of anthropology and gift economies, um, not much. But what, what I do know is um, uh, just about humans in general and um, having worked with uh, archaeologists around the world around, you know, material culture, our material culture. In any, in any culture, we as, a, as humans have had materials that we surround ourselves with. And those materials are items that we've traded um, or we've, you know, we've received from other cultures. It's what's connected us to communities far and near. And this is sort of a smaller way of saying that I feel like for the first time in my life, after years and years of making films about, you know, about people and cultures and um, communities, I never really understood what it meant until, until Rebecca and I started this, this experiment, this social experiment in asking the question of, can we can we um, keep the materials that we have in our community within our community without throwing it away, right? Without wasting it, because Rebecca and I believe that it has value. Back to that dumpster when my kids and I were literally pulling things out, we actually ended up getting, you know, having a little holiday boutique um, over the holidays where community members came to my home and all the kids would pick out all toys that they could give to their siblings or, or presents for their parents. We didn't have the heart to tell people it came from the dumpster. You know, this was literally, this was literally being thrown away. And so that's why we started this experiment was to try to sort of hold on to it, but keep it um, uh, circulating 
in this circular way through through the community year after year after year, especially plastic items, right? They're going to last forever. And plastic toys, they will not break down in general, um, especially kids' toys. So again, for me, that idea of community, now I feel that I, I truly understand that our survival as a community, actually, and as people have lived for generations, cultural survival has been dependent upon upon the material, upon sort of defining ourselves based on our materials that we produce and that we create. And we now in sort of modern times, a lot of, a lot of our communities have lost that sense of a we, you know, who are we? Well, one way to define us is by the materials that we have and that we can share and continue to share within our community. And we can also share them with other communities when they are in need, as we do in times of, of, of um, disaster and chaos. And we can, we can help each other out. We can help our immediate community out. But when our community is, is resilient and another community is in need, then we can share of our excess, as we're seeing governors are doing right now. And, and you, you know, governors will then share with, with states that, and provinces that need, <laughs> that, that are in need. This is human nature. And I feel that I've, really gained a huge window into humankind through having the, you know, amazing privilege of being able to like try out this social experiment with our own little tiny island community and then finding that it, it literally has legs and people, people want to participate and, and try it in their community and see what happens. Hmm. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that you have a book coming out, Buy Nothing, Get Everything. I mean, if you could talk just a little bit about I mean, how did that come together? And, and what was that like putting together? Legal, do you want to answer that? Like, that was a long process as well. <laughs> Very long process. Yeah, I mean, two, uh, the better part of two years in, in writing, writing this book. And um, for us, it was really, it's been an opportunity to move beyond the Buy Nothing Project and provide people with a blueprint for sharing in their everyday lives. Not everybody's on Facebook. And in fact, we do receive multiple requests. I mean, literally every day, people contacting us and saying, seriously, Facebook? So, um, and seriously, not Facebook. In fact, we, it, you don't have to do it in, on, on any kind of social media. There are ways for us to share within our everyday lives just, just naturally um, through our, the natural sort of gatherings that we have in our life when we will be able to um, hopefully get back to um, school communities and our work communities and, you know, our faith communities, uh, as well as just, you know, people, if you're, if you have a book group or any kind of, any kind of, you know, like-minded or not like-minded group, you could literally set up a, um, a bulletin board gift economy in your local cafe where anybody could post on that bulletin board, a specified bulletin board, um, you know, the gifts that you're offering and, and the asks that you um, are asking for. So we, we walk people through, it's a sort of um, aspirational seven-step plan in showing people how we can buy less and live more generously through giving, asking, reusing, making, fixing, um, you know, expressing gratitude, lending, borrowing, um, so it's very sort of we drill down into the details of literally the 50 things and there are hundreds of things that we don't buy. But the very the most common 50 things that Rebecca and I typically don't we found that we don't need to buy um, for 
various reasons. You'll have to read about it in the book. But um, And then the things that we share and the things that we lend, the things that we borrow and showing people how easy it is to create your own shareocracy around you at all times um, and, you know, outside of social media. Well, thank you so much for, for giving of your time today. Uh, is there anything else that we haven't covered that you want to add still? No, I don't think so. Thank you so much for the good questions. And thank you so much for asking us here to speak with you. It's been a real pleasure. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening. And I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor, hit subscribe, leave a rating and review. And most of all, tell someone else you think might like it. If you really love the show, if you want to support in some way, you can head to the shop section of Story Untold. There's merch there. Or in keeping with the Buy Nothing theme, send me a note. You can find me at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. And you can find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time.